Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. In late August of 1790, the newly elected president of the United States, George Washington, visited the congregation of the new Jewish community in Newport, Rhode Island. And they had a beautiful visit with each other. And afterward, George Washington wrote a very famous letter to that Jewish community in which he said the following. The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoy the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. In many ways, one can credit American liberal democracy as one of the greatest blessings the Jewish people have ever known. It allowed the United States to be a haven for Jewish people fleeing from persecution in Europe and in other parts of the world. And it is here that because of the democratic and liberal freedoms that we enjoy, that the Jewish community has flourished in the United States unlike any community in centuries in the diaspora. And even when the state of Israel was building its own government, they looked to Western democracy as their model. And so democracy and Judaism have always had a very special dance. At the same time, of course, the Torah says nothing about democracy itself. But the Torah does talk, and the rabbis later express a sense that each and every human life is of ultimate and infinite value, and that all life is therefore of equal value. And the idea that a government should be, as it is famously said, of the people, by the people, for the people, is in many ways a big part of what the Jewish communities over the centuries have tried to establish. These days, however, we see a bit of an erosion of freedom and democracy around the world as authoritarian regimes begin to get stronger in places where democracy had once taken root. And so today our essential question is, what is the future of democracy? And we couldn't have a better guest to help us with this conversation than Michael Abramowitz, who is the president of Freedom House. Freedom House is a nonpartisan voice dedicated to supporting democracy here and around the world. He oversees a unique combination of analysis, advocacy, and direct support to frontline defenders of freedom, especially those working in closed authoritarian societies. Michael used to direct the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Levine Institute for Holocaust Education, and he also led the museum's genocide prevention efforts. But for the first 24 years of his career, he was at the Washington Post, where he was national editor and then White House correspondent. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and was formerly a Marshall Memorial Fellow at the German Marshall Fund and a media fellow at the Hoover Institution. We are so grateful to have this remarkable leader with us today. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. 
Rabbi, it's uh, really great to be with you. And it's also, it's very moving to hear you read the words of George Washington. It was a great reminder of what it's all about. So, Michael, you've had an amazing career between journalism, which we'll talk a little bit about today, and then, of course, your work with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and now with Freedom House. So why is this work something that scratches an itch for you? You know, what drew you to sort of see democracy and freedom as a mission that you wanted to devote your life's work to doing? Well, first of all, thank you for the question. Thank you for having me. I mean, I always start with family. I come from, a, I think, an interesting family. My father was a longtime diplomat with the U.S. Foreign Service, and so I was actually born in Hong Kong. And my dad had the good fortune to, to rise to become an ambassador. He was ambassador to Thailand and Turkey. And, you know, he was very much focused on issues during his tenure of humanitarian uh, relief, taking care of people who are really the victims of, of authoritarian countries. My mother, too, uh, who I revered, she was a strong advocate for the rights of refugees. So, I mean, family is always sort of what you start with. I think the second thing I would say is, you know, from the time I was a boy, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And what is more foundational to democracy than, than journalism? I, uh, I mean, I, I really do believe that the, the, the role of journalism is absolutely crucial to the, to the success of democracy, because without journalists uh, and without the work of fact-based independent journalism, you don't really have the kind of accountability that's required to keep democracies functioning properly. So I really, I, I came to this as a journalist, and but I had sort of a mid-career switch, which I think in some ways might seem odd, but I think seems natural to me. Uh, I, I, after 24 years at the Washington Post, I became, uh, I, I moved to become a leader at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. First, as a, uh, as you said, running our genocide prevention programs at the museum and then overseeing all of our exhibition and education programs. And I, I do think that the Holocaust is a story of many things. It's a, it's a story of evil. It's a story of, you know, how bad things can get. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a story of, of persecution. I think it's also a democratic story. I mean, I'm always, you know, when I visit the museum and when I gave tours, I always focused on initially on the first third of the museum, which really talks about how uh, Nazi Germany or how Germany went from being one of the most advanced democracies in the world, which it was in 1932, just before Hitler became to power. And he came to power, you know, by democratic means. And then within six or seven years, it became a society that was capable of, of, of genocide. Uh, so that, uh, I, th I think these issues have always been with me, uh, if you will. I, I'm fascinated by that because uh, when I was a teenager, I was totally enamored with uh, journalism also, and had spent uh, a summer at Northwestern University, and that was really the path that I thought I was going to take. And I think that sort of curiosity about asking questions and trying to learn, which I think is such the core of what journalists do, they're learners and then they're teachers and trying to share and, and uncovering the truth in many ways led me to the rabbinate. So it's interesting to see how journalism led you on, on your path. You know, Michael, there are so many different countries around the world that peddle that word democracy. And one of the things that I always find so ironic is that some of the countries that I would say are the least democratic call themselves democracies. And so 
when you at Freedom House and others use the word democracy, what makes for a real democracy? Well, first of all, I think that's a really interesting point you're raising. Some of your listeners may recall that shortly before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russian and Chinese ambassadors to the United States wrote an op-ed, I believe it was in the Washington Post, maybe the New York Times, in which they made, they took pains to, to describe their countries as democratic. So, of course, that's kind of ludicrous. But in some ways, to me, it's a, it's a sign of the success of the democratic movement that the people who run authoritarian countries feel the need to defend themselves as democracies. And in fact, you know, mo even autocratic regimes, whether it's uh, Russia, North Korea, Cuba, you know, they feel like a need to have an election, even how flawed. But I think the point that we make at Freedom House really uh, is that elections are a core requirement of democracy, but it's not only elections that are that are needed. And so like when you ask me sort of what's the definition of democracy, what's the definition? I think it's pretty simple. It's just really about the consent, the will and consent of the governed, right? That the that the people of a country uh, have the the right, which I which we believe is inherent to their to their human rights, is to to pick to pick their rulers and have institutions that are accountable to all citizens, to have adherence to rule of law and respect for human rights. I mean that's sort of basic, you know. And, and democracies can come in different forms and different flavors, but but that, those are really the cardinal principles. And I think. One of the things we do at Freedom House, I'm not sure your listeners know too much about Freedom House, just one minute about it. You know, we do research about the state of democracy. We advocate for democratic principles and human rights, and we support those working on the front lines for, of, for freedom. And our core product is something called Freedom in the World, which is really an assessment of the state of political rights and civil liberties in every country in the world. It's kind of a proxy for democracy. And I think what's interesting when you look at things through the lens, the prism of freedom of the world. You look at the 24 indicators that we look at, which include just core things from freedom of religion, freedom of the press, transparency, rule of law, that what you really come to realize is that elections are crucial, but elections are not enough, that you need you know, freedom of the press to hold governments to account in between elections. You need to have a, a court system that allows people to have redress of their grievances. You need to have freedom of association so people can protest the government. You know, just having an election is not enough. And I think that that distinction is so important because, you know, I remember East Germany used to call itself the German Democratic Republic. But they may have had elections, as you say, but they certainly didn't have any of the other freedoms that you describe. Right. There was no independence of the courts. There was no free press. There was no freedom of association. All of those freedoms, I think, would you say that those freedoms are even more important than basic elections or do they just sort of go hand in hand? Well, I think they go hand in hand. It's, it's, it's hard for me to rate freedoms. I mean, I think they're all important. But I do think I think the fundamental point is an election, if if there's not a press to report on what government is doing. You know, how are people gonna be able to make an informed choice about who their leader is going to be? If a government throws the political opposition into jail, that happened in Nicaragua shortly before their election several years ago. Uh, Nicaragua is a very sad story, which is a country that had you know, been a democracy uh, for a short period of time and now is a, a dictatorship. They had an election 
and the and the government threw the seven leading candidates of the opposition into jail until after the election. So an election cannot be meaningful without the other rights that we look at at Freedom House, and that and I think you you've identified. And I would say principally, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, rule of law, you know, having a good court system. These are really crucial to having a successful democracy. When you describe sort of your interest that led you to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, and you know, here you have a robust democracy, a, a fragile democracy for sure, but a robust democracy in post-World War I Germany that very quickly eroded from a democracy that in a free fair election elected the Nazi party into government to within eight years was the most menacing genocidal machine ever concocted by humanity. And I think that when we see the erosions of freedom and a decline in freedom around the world, it becomes, you know, there's there's almost, you know, a, this growing sense of dread that, you know, people like me, I guess, who cherish democracy sort of feel that that feeling in the back of our necks. What's causing, do you think, free countries to be drifting toward autocracy and the erosion of freedoms, places like Hungary and, and others, which used to be democracies, but have sort of drifted into that authoritarian lane. I mean, the Holocaust is obviously a unique story. And so I'm reluctant to say, because I just kind of be clear with this, I'm reluctant to always say, because there is a uh, an erosion of democratic practice in a certain country, that's going to lead to you know, a Nazi-like situation. No, God Of course, that's not right. going to happen. Uh, however, so that's point number one. I think point number two is that I want to I want to put some of this into context. You know, after the end of World War II, there were probably a dozen democracies in the world. I mean, really, the prevailing system was autocracy. And what you've seen in the last eighty years or so is a really a dramatic flourishing of democracy, of freedom, really, that really kind of accelerated at the end of the last century with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of military dictatorships. There was this so-called third wave of democratization that the political scientist Samuel Huntington referred to. It was really a good long run for democracy. So even with the erosion, we are still way ahead of where we were 80 years ago. And I do think that I'm, I'm an optimistic person. I think that democracy is still kind of going through a rough patch maybe i think we got to not take it for granted that's a really important point but i but i'm also hopeful uh but what you've seen is i think two i'm going to maybe very kind of simplistic but i think this is roughly give your your listeners a sense of this i think there there are two sort of phenomena that are going on i think one is autocratic countries and you think china and russia are sort of the exemplars of this have you know, after kind of a flirtation with being more open, I mean, both in their own ways. I mean, Russia in the 1990s was a kind of a struggling democracy, kind of like Ukraine was today. And uh, in fact, Freedom House, we grouped countries into free, not free, and partly free. And it was a partly free country, not, a, not one of the worst, not one of the best, but it was like struggling in a good direction. China, really after uh, Deng Xiaoping you know, instituted his major reforms after the death of Mao, you know, became more economically open and I think more politically open as well. Again, not a democracy in a conventional sense, but kind of moving in a more open way. 
And I think that what you've seen for a variety of reasons over the last 10 to 15 years is both of those countries moving in a decidedly dictatorial authoritarian direction. And so I think they've been modeled, their, their practice has been modeled by other authoritarian regimes. I think about you know Iran, Venezuela, uh, a number of other countries. Then you have, I think, democracies, you know, still being democracies, but but weakening in their dedication to democratic practice. And that would, you know, you think about a country like India, which is the largest democracy in the world, still has free and fair elections, but does very poorly in our ratings and other ratings. We're not alone in this in terms of their treatment of religious minorities, in terms of their treatment of the press, in terms of the treatment of civil society. So, uh, and I think our own country, the United States, has gone through a rough patch uh, as well. And I don't, I, I really mean that not in a partisan way. You've seen problems across different administrations, uh, but I think that U.S. democracy is slipping. Does it mean that the United States is the same or India is the same as Russia or China? Of course not. I mean, you have to keep this in proportion. You know, we don't throw journalists in jail. They're still a lively press. We have a very strong court system here. But I think you know, events of the last 10 to 15 years, I think, should cause citizens to want to redouble their defense of democracy. So what do you think it takes for a democracy to work? You know, we've seen, as you've described over the last 20, 30 years, democracies sort of emerge and then sort of draw back a little bit. And then efforts at democratization in places like the Arab world, at the Arab Spring or Iraq or Afghanistan, where America poured billions of dollars and blood and treasure to try to sort of create democratic regimes in those places, sub-Saharan Africa. And those efforts just haven't really taken root in the same way as I think all of us might have hoped. So what's going on there? Why aren't those efforts sort of really sort of holding on and and what can be done to sort of learn from those failures? Well, it's a great question. <laughs> Do you have three hours? No, I, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, you know, let, let me say a couple points. The first of all is I think that one challenge for democracies, particularly over the last 15 or 20 years, is that they have not been perceived to be working for people, right? There's a reason that Donald Trump there was a receptivity to him. Uh, there was a reason there was a receptivity to certain populist leaders in Europe. There's a reason that there was a receptivity in, in the UK to Brexit. It's because I think democracies, and in some cases justifiably, uh, were not seen as delivering you know, for broad classes of, of the populations. And I think there's a utilitarian factor here. And I think, by the way, that's a problem for authoritarian countries as well, because they're not delivering. But I think, you know, democracy is not seen as working uh, for average people. And I think that that gives a an opening for people to kind of fill the gap. I also think as a former journalist, the change in the news media, the rise of social media, the rise of, you know, Facebook and Twitter and platforms like that have been in some ways good for open dialogue Compared to when I was a journalist, there is much more voices out in the public sphere, but it also has enabled, you know, much more propaganda essentially to uh, seep into the public dialogue and uh, and really non-facts becoming, 
you know, the coin of the realm. I mean, why do 50% of American people uh, believe that the election in, in 2020, that by all accounts was one of the fairest and freest and, and most, you know, deeply contested uh, was was not a fair election. It's it's crazy, uh, and I think part of that has to do with the the ability of ill-intentioned actors to take advantage of that kind of media environment to to really I think undermine faith in institutions, undermine faith in democracy itself. So I think those are two factors that I think about uh, when I think about why democracy is is under such threat. I will say I, I think one thing that's interesting to me from Freedom House perspective. One of the things that we do at my organization is we are very supportive of on the ground activists and journalists who are working in authoritarian settings, who are working on the ground, you know, to really fight for democracy in their own countries. I find that deeply inspiring. And I find it also deeply, deeply indicative, I think, the direction of like the larger direction of things. You know, in Hong Kong, there's been a tremendous crackdown on freedom in, in, in Hong Kong by the Chinese Communist Party. But Several years ago, there were three or four million people in Hong Kong who went to the streets to protest and demand their rights. You saw this in countries like Myanmar. I'm deeply inspired by what's happening in Ukraine, where really the people of Ukraine are rising up to try to repel invaders who are trying to take away their democracy. So I think there is a real demand for democracy around the world. There's a demand for freedom. There's a demand for rights. I don't think people like in our camp are on the right side of this issue, but we need to we need to fight harder for those rights. You know, I, I think about that sense of these these two forces that are pulling at each other. You have these incredibly inspiring stories of people who are willing to lay it all on the line for freedom. People like Vladimir Karamurza, who you celebrated at your annual dinner back in May, for whom I know that you're continuing to advocate. Maybe if you can just give us a couple of minutes on who Vladimir Karamurza is and what he's trying to do in his fight for freedom. Well, Vladimir Karamurza is a great example of exactly what I was driving at. Vladimir Karamurza is a Russian journalist, thinker, opposition leader. He was close to one of the politicians named uh, Boris Nemtsov, who was murdered in Russia about 10 years ago. Vladimir has been largely living in the United States over the last five or six years. Uh, we've got to know him at Freedom House because we're kindred spirits. We really admire. He's a very outspoken and dedicated uh, defender of democracy. He has a very, very humanistic and large vision of the future of Russia. He speaks very eloquently about how you can't, you know, associate like Putin with Russia, that Russia is something, you know, is, is bigger than Putin, and that there's sometimes people mistake the differences, that the Russian government is different than the Russian people. I think that what happened is, it's really kind of an amazing and horrifying yet deeply inspiring story, that before, just before the Ukraine war started, Vladimir decided to go back to Russia. He'd been kind of going back and forth, you know, uh, quietly over the years, and the government kind of had left him alone, but he decided to go back to really protest the invasion of Ukraine from inside Russia. I mean, he felt that as a Russian politician, as a Russian activist, that, you know, his place belonged, and I think he really believed it's inside Russia, not speaking from the 
you know, from outside the country. And so a lot of his friends urged him not to go because they foresaw correctly that this time would be different and that this time he would fate, he would be in prison. And that's exactly what happened, that he went back to Russia. He started giving interviews. He started writing. He started going on TV. And the Russian government brought really trumped up charges against him. He's now been sentenced to, I think, about 25 years in jail, uh, again, on trumped up charges. Uh, we're very concerned about his, his health. The, the Russian government had tried to poison him twice uh, when he was living in exile and he uh, survived both times. So I think he faces some health challenges and being in a Russian prison is really not a very healthy place to be. And so we're very much worried about his safety. We, we admire him deeply. He is one of, you know, literally hundreds, thousands of prisoners who are in jail on politically motivated charges. You know, we were, I was just mentioning the case of you know, another one we're very concerned about is the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gerskowitz. I mean, the difference with Evan uh, is he's getting a lot of high-level attention from the U.S. government, from from a lot of journalistic organizations, which is wonderful. But there's a lot of other people not getting that kind of attention. I mean, Vladimir is also getting a fair amount of attention relatively, but, you know, there's just a lot of people in jail. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's really reverted in Russia very much to uh, close to what it was like in terms of freedom as it was in Soviet times. According to Freedom House, Israel is the only free country in the Middle East. Yeah. But over the last several months, we've seen massive demonstrations against efforts by the Israeli government to change the power judiciary. And the debate that's going on in Israel to me is fascinating because each side is claiming the mantle of democracy. So those who support the reforms claim that the courts are anti-democratic. The judges are not elected by the people, and they're chosen in Israel by a carefully crafted board comprised of the Minister of Justice, who chairs it, and another cabinet minister, and the president of the Supreme Court, and two other justices on the Supreme Court, and two members of the Knesset, and two representatives of the Israel Bar Association. So many of the people who select judges are themselves not elected. So they say this is anti-democratic. They also say, hey, there was an election, and the consequences of that election were that we got to be in power, and so you don't get to tell us what laws we can pass and what we can't pass. And then at the same time, there are those who are protesting those changes that say that in Israel, it's only a robust independent judiciary that has a check on any of the power of the government. You've now seen week after week after week of hundreds of thousands of people pouring into the streets to protest these judiciary uh, reforms. And so in a strong democracy, what role does the judiciary play? And is there legitimacy to the claims that the power of judiciary is to nullify laws that are passed by popularly elected legislatures are therefore not democratic? Well, let me make a couple of points about that. First of all, Going to your first point about the protests, I do believe that the, that kind of protest is a sign of health and democracy. You know, the fact that ordinary citizens are going every Friday to register their discontent with the powers that be in a certain country. I mean, that is democratic practice that we encourage. I mean, I'm not speaking specifically about 
Israel, but it's just like that, that, that to me is very moving. Uh, and I think actually it's one of the great strengths of American democracy that, that citizens feel that they can, you know, mobilize, freely associate to register their uh, concerns, whatever their concerns are. Yeah, there's a, we had a conversation last year with Brett Stevens, uh, who was here, and we were talking about all of the machinations with the proposed judicial reforms. And he said, no, I think Israel's democracy is strong when you have hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets protesting for what they believe in and they're protected in their right to do so. He says that's the mark of a healthy democracy. Correct. I agree with that completely. What I would also say, if I can offer maybe some perspective, I think in general, the judicial system is a really important hallmark of healthy democracies. You know, having an independent judiciary that is kind of a check on executive power. I mean, the countries where you really have problems, uh, where you have authoritarian leaders, is where the the judiciary has frankly been vitiated as kind of a creature of the uh, of, of the governing power. I mean, it's important to have checks and balances. I mean, that's one of the again the hallmarks of the of the American system. I mean. One might, one might argue that we've gone too far, that there's so many checks and balances that it's hard to get things done. You know, you hear that kind of case being made. But I think in general, uh, where, you, where you really run into a problem is raw, unchecked, you know, executive power. You know, I think the situation in Israel is a tough one because I do think I you do hear the case made that the Supreme Court, you know, as it was currently constituted, had too much power. But it was really the only kind of check on on the executive in Israel. I mean, to me, what I think is interesting and revealing about the situation in Israel is that it's really a sign of how polarized a society is. Because you would like to think that people from all parties should be able to come together and kind of you know, come to some kind of consensus of how the system should change, right? Recognizing that maybe there were some problems with the old system, but that the, but you don't want to throw out the whole thing. And it seems to me that this has been rammed through on a party line vote, a very significant change that could dramatically, you know, uh, undercut the kind of this checks and balances. So I think that's where the cause for concern is. So, Mike, you spent many years in journalism. And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about the role of the press in a free society. You see a lot of decline in mainstream newspapers, a lot of growth in partisanship and opinion in cable news. One of the things that I saw recently that gave me a little bit of concern was, you know, with the growth of AI, the AI scours the internet for information. And so AI can write a very convincing news article about how the Holocaust never happened because all of those quack theories are out there on the internet to be scoured. And so when you take a look in America at the fourth estate, where do you see America in terms of the freedom of the press and what can be done to ensure a robust, responsible free press in America? I see a mixed picture. You know, I, I, I've been a journalist. Uh, I was a journalist for 25 years. I have been you know, watching both the Holocaust Museum and at Freedom House, especially because one of our big issues is, is is press freedom, what's happened, and they're, they're concerning trends. I, I would start by saying it's not all bad. Uh, when I was a young reporter, there were much fewer outlets for news and information. There was much more t- control to the top, 
And so I think the rise of the internet, the rise of social media, uh, the changes in, in, in technology have opened up the opportunity for, for more voices to be heard, sometimes marginalized voices. So I think that's not an entirely bad thing. I think the problem is several fold. I think one is, is that the, inter- the internet has eroded kind of the operating financial model of, of, of journalism. And so uh, of kind of fact-based independent journalism. So whereas like when I was a reporter of the Washington Post, the Post did very well by classified advertising. Paper every day was really thick and uh, with with ads and it was very well funded. You know, that's gone away. And uh, a lot of that money is now being captured by Google and Facebook. And I think a lot of newspapers are having a lot of trouble, not just in the United States, uh, but but around the world. And you have these kind of so-called news deserts where there are parts of the uh, country that are not served by, you know, good local news. And I think serious public affairs journalism is crucial to the health of democracy. You can't have a democracy if people don't know the facts about what are going on. And what's particularly concerning, especially about the case that you alluded to, is that this, with the rise of AI, the ability to kind of manipulate the uh, facts, you know, these so-called deep fakes where you can make people videos of people appearing to say something that they didn't say, you know, have really the potential to further erode. And I think the thing that I'm most concerned about is trust in the media has really eroded. Trust in most institutions in our country have substantially eroded. But, you know, if people can't trust the facts, then we're really in trouble. I would like to talk a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. So to date, the United States has directed nearly $77 billion in aid to Ukraine, including like $47 billion in military aid and $26 billion in financial assistance, another $4 billion in humanitarian assistance. And then there are some that are saying we're not doing enough. And then there are others that are saying America has done plenty and we've done all that we can. And so what do you think should be America's role in this conflict? And why do you think it's important that America be engaged in this fight? Well, I believe that America is playing a proper role now. I think it's in our national security interest to be very supportive of Ukraine as we have been. I think it's a mistake, and we've seen history tell us many times, it's a mistake for us to be disengaged from that conflict. Uh, I really believe that Ukraine is the front line of the struggle for democracy uh, in our world. Like American troops are not going there we're not no you know, no one's dying from america we are spending money on this but i think it's money well spent you know putin invaded a sovereign country he tried to de- he's trying to destroy maybe not a perfect but a real democracy that is trying to be free and honestly if if countries like the united states turn away from that that is really going to be bad in the long term for the health of the world, because people like Putin, people like Xi Jinping, people are going to be very emboldened. We're going to move gradually and but perceptibly from a world that you know is based on principle to one that's based on just raw power. And uh, you know, people often say, "Well, the United States, you know, is has no leg to stand on because they invaded Iraq, or you know, we're hypocritical." And and you know, look, there's some of that is true, but the reality is is that if Putin invasion of Ukraine is not contested, that is really bad news for the future of free societies. And I actually believe, I'm hopeful, I think that 
Putin. His army is is being drained away, his, his hard power. I do believe, I, I can't predict, but I do believe this is going to end up well for the for those countries that are free, but it's but it's but it's a struggle. But it's in our national interest to to have a strong free Ukraine. Uh, it is not just a nice to have thing. And for the millions of people who live in Ukraine to not have to be forced to live under the oppressive thumb of an authoritarian regime is in and of itself, I think, a human good. No, it's a human good. But let me say one thing, Rabbi, that, you know, I think that's true. But I think, you know, that's a hard case to make sometimes to Americans. I completely agree with you. But, you know, Americans have their own problems. And they say, well, why does like what's happening in Ukraine or Taiwan or Venezuela or, you know, Poland or wherever, why does that matter to us? And the truth is, is that America can't retract and put its head in the sand. You know, if, if we're not out there fighting for democracy, however flawed sometimes that fight may be, then bad things will happen. So the last question I'd ask you, Mike, is what is the essential question that you're asking yourself these days? Wow, that's a great question. I, I would say the question that I ask is, what can we do as as individuals to counter this this trend? I mean, I think the trend seems so massive sometimes, and it's hard for individuals to know, like, well, how can I make a difference right in the world? I mean, I really think that's a question I get a lot, and it's a question I sometimes honestly feel I don't have always the best answers to. But I think. You know, we as individuals have to be, you know, have to take it on ourselves to be defenders of democracy. We have to vote. We have to teach our children about civics. We have to teach our children about why democracy matters. When I first took over at Freedom House, I thought, hey, you know, it's self-evident that democracy is the best system of government, which it is. But but we have to actually make that case to people because people are not understanding that anymore. So I really think it's what is our personal responsibility to defend freedom and democracy? That's the essential question that I ask myself every day. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for being with us today and wish you and your family uh, only good things in 5784. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbepoca.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboca.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.